Well, as we come to God's word and open the scriptures together, let's bow together in a word of prayer, asking the Lord's blessing upon our time. Our Father in heaven, we come humbly before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the treasure that it is that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have revealed yourself truthfully, that it, is, it comes to us without error, and that we are able to fully and completely discern your will from its pages. And I pray as we open it this morning and look to how the scriptures speak of Christ your Son, I pray that you would direct our hearts and our minds to grow in our love and gratitude for him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our theme for Advent this year is longing for the Messiah as we begin to look at some of the Old Testament prophecies that laid the groundwork of expectation for this one who would come. Last week, we began looking at the very first messianic prophecy of the scriptures, and that is, was in Genesis, where all things in the scriptures begin, and uh, in particularly in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. There, we saw in the context of this prophecy that our first parents, Adam and Eve, they were created in perfection, but because of their sin and rebellion, they cast all of humanity into sin. And as a result of their fall, there were dire consequences. Every relationship was affected. Mankind's relationship with God, mankind's relationship with each other, and mankind's relationship with creation was all affected. And ultimately, as a consequence, Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden, and there was a cherubim put at the, the, the garden gate so that they could not return. But it's in the midst of those devastating consequences that the Lord offered a glimmer of hope to humanity. He promised that there would be someone who would be born of a woman who would come and would be a deliverer, who would provide ultimate victory over the serpent, the serpent who had tempted Adam and Eve and had brought sin into the world. In doing so, this victorious deliverer would reverse the curse. He would make the world right again. In fact, the world needed a new Adam. The first Adam had failed drastically. We needed a new Adam who would be able to succeed where Adam failed. We needed a new king to rule in righteousness. And friends, that's exactly what you and I need. Here in 2022, we need a king who will rule in righteousness. Now, we are product of Western democracies. We uh, have rejected a king a long time ago. We don't feel like we need a king or want a king or that a king would even be a good idea. And I have to say that in this world of fallen man and fallen leaders, I believe the system of government that we have here in America is near the best. But we need to remind ourselves that our greatest problems and our loftiest dreams cannot be fulfilled with fallen leaders of this world. No utopia can be created on this earth through merely human means. Democratic republics and socialist regimes and everything in between will fail to fully vanquish evil and establish permanent good on this earth. And the reason is because all the leaders are flawed. Friends, we need a leader 
who can lead in true righteousness. We need a leader who can bring ultimate victory. We need a king. Dare I say, you need a king. You need a king you can follow. You need a king you can love. You need a king you can trust. You need a king who can save you from your sin and corruption that is so part of our hearts. You need a king who will make this world right again, who will heal all of your pains and suffering. Friends, isn't this what our hearts long for? For everything to be made right? For the evil to be done away with, to be gone forever? We want it to be right, to be true here on this earth. Thankfully, God has provided this king. He provided this king in none other than the person of Jesus Christ, his very son. But as we know, he didn't send him right away. Mankind fell, Genesis 3, but he didn't come for another several thousand years after that initial promise. But immediately after the promise was given, that Genesis 3.15 promise that a deliverer would come, mankind began looking to see who this person would be and when he would come. They began looking for the new Adam. And as we go through the remainder of the book of Genesis, Moses structures his narratives around the expectation of this promised offspring. Who will this promised deliverer be? And what, from what family will he come? What will characterize him? What will he do when he comes? And so as we, the readers, we go through the book of Genesis, we begin to see how God reveals more and more of his promised plan. And make no mistake, this plan of God flows out of God's grace. It was unmerited grace that enabled God to declare that promise in Genesis 3.15. Did Adam and Eve deserve that promise? Did Adam and Eve deserve that salvation, that deliverer? Absolutely not. They deserve judgment, wrath. And yet God graciously gave them a promise that he would send a savior. This is amazing grace. God's grace continues to be seen throughout the book of Genesis as he graciously, graciously chooses those whom he will work through and through whom he will bring the Savior, the Messiah. As we saw last week, God chose Seth and not his brother Cain to be the son of Adam and Eve through which he would bring the Messiah. But Genesis chapters 6 through 9 then describe God's gracious election and salvation of Noah and his family as they were preserved in the ark while the entire planet was decimated by the flood of God's judgment. Chapters 10 and 11 tell of how God chose the line of Shem and not Ham or Japheth. Chapter 12 begins a new section of the book where God chooses graciously Abraham as the man through whom he will bring restoration and blessing to the planet. God, in fact, makes a covenant with Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. He made a promise with him, and the rest of the book of Genesis highlights this fulfillment of this covenant, of this promise. And as we go through the book, God's gracious election continued. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. He chose Jacob, not Esau. 
The promised offspring would not come by human wisdom, human scheming, or human planning, but simply by God's gracious sovereignty. And Genesis tells that account over and over again. You get to chapters 29 and 30, and there recounts how Jacob fathers 12 sons. And he especially loved Joseph, favoring him above all the rest. And as we can imagine, this evoked jealousy in the ten older brothers, and it led them to almost kill Joseph. But as they were contemplating murder, they decided rather to sell him to some traders who were passing by at the last minute, and those traders took him down to Egypt. What looked like an awful turn of events turned out to be, again, God's saving grace to this family of Abraham, this family of Jacob at this point, descendant of Abraham, because Joseph rose to power by God's grace and using his power, he was able to secure safety and food for Jacob's family in the midst of famine. God was displaying his grace and enacting his promised plan, fulfilling his promises. Well, it's here in Egypt as Jacob's family has all come down and entered there to live, that Jacob then comes to the end of his life. He's an old man of 12 grown sons, and he prophesies about their future. Their future not only as individual men, but as families, as tribes, as the future of Israel's history will show. These 12 men grew their families into 12 tribes known as the 12 tribes of Israel. And so he prophesies of what will take place in coming days for each of them. And in the midst of that prophecy, we get more clarity on the Savior who would come to bring ultimate victory over the serpent, the clarity that we know would clarify ultimately in Jesus Christ. And so I invite you this morning to turn in your personal copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49, almost to the end of the book of Genesis. It is in chapter 48 that Jacob has just blessed Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And in that blessing, he gave the birthright to them. Instead of Reuben, the oldest son, holding the title of, of, of firstborn and having the birthright to him and all the privileges that came with that. Instead, here in chapter 48, Jacob passes the birthright on to Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. In fact, blessing the younger Ephraim over the older Manasseh, a pattern that we've already seen in Genesis. And the reason for this was because of Reuben's immorality and therefore he lost the right to the blessing. But it's after the passing of that birthright in chapter 48 that we, he turns in chapter 49 and calls all of his sons together to bless them. And so I want to begin by looking at verse 1 so we can understand the context of this chapter. G Genesis 49 verse 1 says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. These words of Jacob are self-consciously future-oriented. This is why I, we can call it a prophecy. 
You notice he's telling them what shall happen to you in the days to come. Literally, it is the, could be translated the end of the days. What will happen to you in the end of the days? Or could be translated the last days, as the Legacy Standard Bible does. This phrase is used 14 times in the whole Old Testament, and it's a catchword, it's a catchphrase that when we see in the days to come, or in the latter days, or in the last days, some variation of that in our English translation, it should prick our minds to recognize that this is most likely talking about the very future, the very end of days, the Messianic age. There's a few references that speak of somewhat of a nearer history than that, but it always looks too forward to that ultimate end of days, the time when the offspring of the woman would defeat the serpent and the world would be made right again. And so for our purposes this morning, we're going to look at Jacob's words to Judah, Jacob's words to Judah in verses 8 through 12. These are crucial for understanding the expectation of the Messiah. And so follow along as I read those verses. Genesis 49, beginning in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Today, in these verses, I want to show you how Jacob's blessing of Judah stoked the longing in the hearts of the Israelites for the Messiah. These verses, therefore, should do the same in our hearts as we look forward to the second advent of Jesus Christ. And so, as with that in mind, let's look at how this text reveals three expectations of the coming Messiah. Three expectations of the coming Messiah revealed in verses 8 through 12 here. And the first expectation revealed about this coming Messiah is that this Messiah will have dominant preeminence, will have dominant preeminence. And we see this in verses 8 and 9. Now, up to this point in verses 2 through 7, Jacob has spoken to his three older sons, to Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And the words so far have not been positive. They have, uh, they have taken their father's words and they're a little cringeworthy because he's scolded each one of them. He's scolded Reuben for his sexual sin. And he scolded Simeon and Levi for their anger and their wrath. And so at this point, as he then goes to his fourth son and speaks to Judah, I can imagine Judah may be cringing a little bit, waiting to be criticized himself. All right, Dad, what are you going to say about me now? And if we review Genesis, he's actually got some good reason to be criticized too. Judah doesn't exactly have a great track record. In fact, who was the brother who sitting there in the, 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 the fields with their brother in a pit, suggested that they should sell him to slavery? Oh, that was Judah. And then Genesis 38, 
Judah gets a whole incriminating chapter to his name in which he rather than uh, he begins by marrying a Canaanite woman of the land. He then has three unrighteous sons and he fails to keep his line alive by giving his third son to uh, Tamar. And so Tamar takes things into her own hands, dresses as a prostitute, seduces Judah, who then sleeps with her, and then she's pregnant, and he wants to kill her for her infidelity, and when she reveals that actually Judah was the one who impregnated her. Let's just say Judah is not a paragon of virtue. So the question Judah's wondering, sitting there amongst all of his brothers, is, Dad, are you going to bring up this issue with Tamar? Well, there seems to have been some transformation that took place in Judah's life from that point of chapter 38 and that situation with Tamar to here in 49. Over the course of the narrative, we see a change in Judah, and he rises as a leader amongst his brothers. In chapters 42 and 43, Reuben tries to convince Jacob to go back to Egypt, and Jacob hears nothing of it and, and shuts it down. But Judah suggests it, and, Ru and Jacob listens to his son Judah, not to his oldest son Reuben. In chapter 44, the brothers all arrive in Egypt, and they're identified as Judah and his brothers. Not Reuben and his brothers, but Judah and his brothers. Again, Judah is already showing to be somewhat of a leader amongst his brothers. But the ultimate evidence of his transformation, I believe, comes there in chapter 44. When Joseph, still disguised as the Egyptian, seeks to punish his brother Benjamin. And Jacob, or Joseph rather, is testing his brothers. Are they the same callous men who put me into slavery or have they changed at all? Are they going to do anything different with Benjamin than what they did with me? And Judah rises to show that he is a different man. Rather than suggesting that, yeah, let him go for us, Judah steps forward and is willing for himself to be taken in the place of Benjamin. Truly, he is a different man. A man who's willing to sell his brother on one hand and then willing to sacrifice himself for his brother on the other hand. And so all of this is the narrative that leads up here to Genesis 49 as Jacob prophesies about Judah. And here he does not criticize Judah, but he rather he praises him. And so let's look at verse 8. Jacob describes Judah's dominant preeminence in two ways. Look at verse 8. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. First, Jacob uses two phrases to tell of Judah's primacy among his brothers. He first says that his brothers will praise him. Here there is a, a wordplay going on in this line in the Hebrew. Judah uh, in the Hebrew is Yehuda and praise is Yada. And so there's a similar sounding word. Judah's name means we praise and his mother gave him this name because she praised the Lord for giving, him, giving her a son. And now Jacob is saying that now your brothers will praise you. Why? Why are they praising him? There is a, some sort of celebration or respect of who Judah is and what he's accomplished. We see this mirrored as well in the last phrase of verse 8. If you skip over the middle line for a minute, it says, Your father's sons shall bow down before you. 
And so they praise Judah, they bow down before him. This is reminiscent of Genesis 27, verse 29, in which Jacob, the one who's speaking these words, heard from his father Isaac the, these words. His father Isaac said to Jacob, be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. And now Jacob himself is passing on this blessing to his son Judah, saying, your father's sons shall bow down before you. Your father's sons, because let's remember that there were four women that gave birth to Ju or, uh, Jacob's 12 sons. And so if you only said your mother's sons to Judah, it would only be a small handful, whereas Jacob broadens it to say your father's sons will bow down before you. Of course, readers of Genesis will also hear echoes of the dreams that Joseph had. Remember, Joseph had these dreams as the little tyke in the family, and he says, hey, brothers, I just had a dream that you guys were all bushes of wheat, and you're all bowing down before me. And they weren't very happy about that. It stoked their jealousy, their, their rivalry. But here, it's not Joseph's sons that the brothers will bow down to. It's Judah that the brothers will bow down to. And so up to this point, this idea of bowing down, what, is the, what kind of imagery does that take? Where does that take us? It takes us like into a throne room, right? Where you have one who has regal authority and those who are at his feet and they're bowing before him in, in some sort of homage. And so just as Joseph was elevated and his brothers bowed down to him, so in some ways this is prophesying that Judah will be elevated and his brothers will recognize that. But I believe one of the reasons that his brothers will bow down before him and will praise him is because of the dominance, not only that he shows over his brothers, but over his enemies. And that leads us to the second line here in verse 8. Not only dominance oh, and preeminence over his brothers, but dominance over his enemies. He says, Judah, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. This isn't just a, uh, you know, you're just going to be kind of putting your hand there, kind of patting them. This is a sign of subjugation. It's an Old Testament reference of having victory over one's enemies in which they can't do anything else. Their, their neck is grabbed by the, the stronger force and they're simply in subjection to that stronger authority. It's speaking of being, in, being over and in control of their enemies. And so Judah will one day dominate, be the dominant force over his enemies. He will be victorious over them. They will be subdued before him. And this may mean that the tribe of Judah will be militarily dominant or that the one from Judah will lead in this. And we see this in the book of Judges that Judah led in the conquest of the land. This prophecy here continues the promise to Abraham given in Genesis 22 that one of his offspring would be victorious over his enemies. And King David, many generations later, understood that his victory over his enemies was at least a partial fulfillment of this verse. David, who came from the tribe of Judah, said this in 2 Samuel 22, 41, you have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. He understood that he was part of this fulfillment. So this verse prophesies military dominance for Judah and for his offspring. But Jacob continues to illustrate this, to continue to 
press this point. There was going to be a power and a force that Judah was going to have. And he uses an illustration of a lion. And this takes us to verse 9. He compares Judah to a lion. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Three of the seven Hebrew words for lion are found in this verse. And he describes a lion as one who has just gone up from destroying his prey. Again, the imagery of victory. The lion has gone after his prey and now he is leaving and going back to his lair, triumphant. And then he goes and he lies down. I don't think this is a crouching in terms of a a looking to pounce. I think it's a lying down in order to rest in his victory. He's in control. He's the dominant player. Who dare touch him? Who dare rouse such a mighty beast? The Puritan Matthew Henry says it this way. He says, by this it is foretold that the tribe of Judah should make war, not for the sake of war, but for the sake of peace. Judah is compared not to a lion rampant, always tearing, always raging, always ranging, but to a lion couchant, enjoying the satisfaction of his power and success without creating vexation to others. This is to be truly great. He's truly at the top of the food chain. He can rest and there is no one that is going to touch him. No one's dare going to rouse him. Of course, we know from ancient history that lions were a symbol of power and authority and strength in the ancient world. In fact, I've been to the Pergamum Museum in Berlin where the, the gates of ancient Babylon are displayed, the Ishtar gates, constructed by Nebuchadnezzar II in 575 BC, and lions are, are pictured all along that whole uh, walkway leading up to the gates and on the facade of the gate. 1 Kings chapter 10 tells us that Solomon's throne had a lion at each armrest. Even the biblical kings use this imagery of a lion. So the question before us is, who fulfills this prophecy? Who is it that was dominant in this way, dominant, exercising dominant preeminence over the tribes of Israel and over his enemies? Now, an argument could be made for David and Solomon fulfilling this in their time, in their era. And in one sense, they did. They were the height of the tribe of Judah. They were the greatest kings that that Judah produced. But they did not uh, have ultimate dominance and preeminence. It was short-lived for them. And while they defeated all the physical enemies in their vicinity... They did not defeat the ultimate enemy, that is the serpent, that is Satan, the ultimate enemy of humanity. And so the New Testament makes it clear that Jesus of Nazareth is the preeminent descendant of Judah. It is, was without question that Jesus was descended from the tribe of Judah in the family of David. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, he is called the Lion of Judah which is a direct reference to this passage here. Who is the Lion of Judah? It is ultimately Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Not only this, but he then called on and received the worship of Israel. It talks about the the brothers, the tribes of Israel praising Judah. Who ultimately receives that praise? It is the preeminent Judite. It is Jesus Christ. 
And yet, we know that right now, the Jews don't bow down before Jesus of Nazareth, nor are his enemies subdued underneath him. His hand is not on the neck of enemies defeating them, rendering them powerless. The enemy still roams around. The nations continue to rage. And this is where we remind ourselves that Jesus Christ will return again. He will come to rescue his people. He will come to smite his enemies. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 4 prophesies, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And Revelation 19.15 confirms this is exactly what he will do when he returns again. And it is at that time that Jesus, the Lion of Judah, will rise to crush his prey and no one can stop him. The prophecy that Jacob gives here regarding the days to come will ultimately be fulfilled in the last days when Jesus returns. But friends, here's the good news. We can be freed and saved from the wrath to come. By trusting in Jesus now, we can be saved from the wrath that he will bring in a later day. By trusting in Jesus, believing him to be the son of God, believing his sacrifice upon the cross to be sufficient to pay for my sins and for your sins, you can be saved. For God loved the world in this way that he sent his only son that whoever believes in, whoever believes in him, shall not perish, shall not experience that wrath, but will have eternal life. So the question is, do you know the Lion of Judah? Have you trusted in him today so that you will not experience his wrath when he returns? Only Jesus can save you. And so we've seen here the first, the coming of Messiah's dominant preeminence. But let's look next at his regal power in verse 10. Let's look next at his regal power in verse 10. Verse 10 is the most explicitly messianic verse in this text. In the first two lines, we see kingship mentioned. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. These are two references to things that rulers would hold. The ruler's staff that would stand there would be a long staff that would go down, touch the floor, and he would hold, or the scepter that he would hold in his hand. Both of these are representing and talking about kingship. And it says the kingship will be in what tribe? It'll be in the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Genesis 17, verse 6, the Lord promised that kings would come from Abraham. And here, this promise in Genesis 49 shows that the way that God was going to fulfill that promise to Abraham was through the tribe of Judah. And we know that about 800 years later, God made a covenant with David, promising the kingship would come from his line, thereby, thereby fulfilling and, and narrowing the spe specifications that the Messiah would not just come from Abraham, not just come from Judah, but would come from David. Now, the middle phrase of this verse in the English Standard Version is translated until tribute comes to him. There is no doubt that every translation that you have just about probably has a footnote next to that uh, phrase and gives you some other options in the footnote. This is one of the most debated phrases in all of the Hebrew Old Testament, and I normally will not take you into any sort of details of this uh, but because this varies so significantly in your Bibles, uh, the ESV says, until tribute comes to him. Others uh, say things that seem to be uh, drastically different. So I want to quickly try to explain why they are different. 
First, let's just look at the three different ways they're rendered. Your Bible may say, uh, until Shiloh comes. Until Shiloh comes. Or as the English Standard and the New Revised Standard says, until tribute comes to him. Or thirdly, until he comes to whom it belongs. Until he comes to whom it belongs. Now, option one, and we can just keep those options up there while I walk through these. Option one, the main Hebrew manuscripts, the Masoretic text, have the word Shiloh there. So that's why it is often translated until Shiloh comes. But interpreters struggle to know what does Shiloh mean? What is it talking about? It can't refer to the place name Shiloh, a, a physical town or village in Israel. And attempts to connect this word to the word Shalom uh, are unconvincing and so historically, commentators have just go, gone, well, we're not sure what Shiloh means. It must just mean a, a name for the Messiah. One of the names of Jesus, one of the names of the Messiah is Shiloh because this passage reveals that. But otherwise, there's not a real discerned other meaning from it. The option two that is here as represented in the English Standard Version is saying that kingship would be with Judah until tribute from the nations comes to this king, to Judah's future king. Now, the way that they get to this phrase is that in the original Hebrew, there was no vowel pointings, okay? It was all consonants. And then, in about the 10th century AD, the Masoretes, a group of Jewish scholars, added vowels to our Hebrew text and uh, coming up with the words that we have in a, in a standardization of pronunciation. And so, uh, scholars have looked at this and said, well, if we, if we change the vowels with those consonants, we could uh, get a phrase that says this, that until tribute comes to him. And it seems to be parallel with the next line that says that there's obedience that comes to him from the nations, and so there seems to be also tribute that comes to him from the nations. The problems with this is that it requires some changes to the text that are kind of just in the creative mind of the interpreter, and there aren't really represented in any sort of ancient uh, manuscripts. Option three, this view interprets the phrase as saying, uh, the one that says, until he comes to whom it belongs, that kingship would remain with Judah until the one who has the right to the scepter arrives. Therefore, they're saying that Judah will keep the kingship until and through the Messiah's arrival. This translation stands on some variant readings. Some older Hebrew manuscripts, just about 38 of them, have this, uh, this Hebrew here that would translate in this way. And it seems to be this Hebrew that the translators of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, used. It's also found in other ancient translations. And... I believe the, the point that tips this a little bit in its favor is that the exact same phrase is found in Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 27. We don't have time to look there, but you can write it down. Ezekiel 21, verse 27, using the same phrase in a messianic context. And so thereby, it seems that Ezekiel is referencing the Genesis 49 passage speaking about the Messiah. He's also employing the same exact phrase. And so... I'm not going to live or die on a choice. If I was to lean in a direction, I'd lean towards option three. I believe it makes the most sense. But here's the point in all of this. Whatever your translation says, all of them are seeking to identify the Messiah, the one who fulfills this promise. He will be from the line of Judah. He will be a king. He will have the scepter. He will sit upon the throne. And he will have worldwide dominion. 
And that's what the last phrase of verse 9 identifies, that he will have worldwide dominion until tribute comes to him, as the ESV says, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Anytime you see peoples in the Bible, you know that it's referencing the nations. It's referencing all the nations of the world. It's saying that not just Israel is going to bring obedience to this king, but that all the nations of the world are going to bring obedience to this king. He will have a worldwide dominion. They will obey the Messiah. They will acknowledge him as the world ruler. This worldwide dominion of the Messiah is picked up in later prophecies of the Old Testament, such as Psalm 72, verse 8, where it says, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, saying, May this come true. May the Messiah have such a, a worldwide dominion. And then Psalm, this psalm, Psalm, 78, psalm 72, verse 8, is then almost quoted verbatim by Zechariah as he prophesies the Messiah's entrance into Jerusalem. Verses no doubt you're familiar with. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10 say, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt to the full of a donkey. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. And get this, he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now get this, verse 9 is quoted in the New Testament as by the New Testament writers who say, listen, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, he fulfilled Zechariah 9.9. He fulfilled this prophecy. Jesus is the one that Zechariah 9 is talking about, in other words. But we know that verse 10 was not fulfilled. And in fact, verse 10 isn't quoted in the New Testament. Because what they recognize is that even though he came humble and mounted on a donkey and he fulfills that prophecy and that longing, he's not yet fulfilled his full messianic mission. The nations do not yet recognize Jesus. They do not come to him in obedience. He is not, his dominion is not yet from sea to sea. Because even though he came as their king, he was rejected. And therefore, verse 10 was postponed until his second advent when he would come again. And so we know now that Jesus is the one that Genesis 49 speaks of. We know that he is the one spoken of in Zechariah 9. We know that he is the rightful messianic king. But we are still waiting for him to finish what he started. For him to come and to make this world right. For him to establish his kingdom, to speak peace to the nations, and to enable there to be Eden on earth, for there to be righteousness to abound upon this planet. We long for that day. We long for when the nations are going to be totally transformed. When is it that they will be able to obey the Messiah? When is it that this entire planet will look to Jesus and obey him? It's when they're transformed, when they're changed from the inside out, when they are regenerated and redeemed. This will be the result of Christ's saving work. When Habakkuk 2 verse 14 says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. So we see that he, seen two characteristics of this coming Messiah. Let's turn now, look finally at the third characteristic 
of the coming Messiah given in this passage. We see in verses 11 through 12. The final two verses use prophetic imagery to describe an earthly paradise, a return to Eden. Look at verse 11. It says, Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Commentator Derek Kidner put it succinctly this way. He said, every line of these verses speaks of exuberant, intoxicating abundance. He says, it is the golden age of the coming one whose universal rule was glimpsed in the previous verse. Exuberant, intoxicating abundance. This verse gave Israel the expectation That the very one who would come from the line of Judah, who would sit upon the throne, who would be king in a future day, would be the very one who would bring about abundant prosperity upon this earth. And the, the language here may not resonate with us as well because we're a modern technological society. But if you kind of put yourself in an agrarian society, you can maybe understand this reference to animals and to uh, growing vines. The prophecy is about bountiful harvests. The first illustration is the, the binding or the tying of, of his donkey's colt to a choice vine. And we're like, okay, what's the big deal of tying off your donkey, okay? Um, but the thing is this, are grape vines typically strong enough to hold a beast of burden like a horse or a donkey? You know, if they were to like get spooked and try to run away, do you think they'd probably break through that vine? Probably. The grapevines are, are not often that strong. And so what's described here is if the Messiah, notice it says his foal and his donkey, there's singular pronouns used here, that if he's to tie off his donkey onto one of these vines, it must be growing so abundantly and so strong that this vine is like a tree. This vine is, is, is strong enough to be able to hold a donkey, but it's more than that. Under normal circumstances, an uh, owner of a vineyard would not tie off his donkey to a, a vine because if you put a, a donkey who's going to eat just about everything green within uh, near vicinity, you're, you're not going to have much of your vine left by the time uh, you come back to it. But the imagery here is that there's so much abundance, they don't care. They can let the donkey eat all the grapevines he wants. It doesn't matter because this earth is just producing so many strong, vigorous vines. He can eat all the grapes he wants too. But, and that's where he goes is with the grapes. And the next, he talks about wine and the blood of grapes. Out of these vines, you get, you get massive amounts of grapes to produce wine from. And it says that the Messiah will wash his garments in wine. I don't think this is to dye his, his robe in any sort of uh, color. I, I think what it's, what it's illustrating is the fact that there are so many grapes and there's so much wine being produced that you can swap out wash water for wine. Listen, we got so much wine, we can just wash garments in, in it because it's as plentiful as water. It's as almost worthless as wash water. This is the language of excess. And then he closes in verse 12 with with two phrases that describe further bounty. 
Talking about the eyes and the teeth. Again, talking about the physical manifestations of this Messiah, that there's health, that there's vigor. Translations go different ways with it. Some uh, talk about, as the ESV does here, there's a comparison. The eyes are darker than wine or teeth whiter than milk. Or the NASB that talks about it as uh, a source, that it's dark from wine or white from wine. Both are grammatically possible in the Hebrew. But the point is this. The Messiah is going to bring about agricultural abundance, that he is going to renew this earth, that where there was death and there was a curse placed upon this this planet as a result of mankind's sin that we saw last week in Genesis chapter 3, that the ground would be cursed, that curse is going to be lifted, and this earth is now going to produce bountiful harvest in ways it hadn't before. It would outshine its former glory. No longer would thorns and thistles pervade, but crops would grow like weeds. We use that term, right? Grow like weeds because they can grow anywhere, anytime, anyplace. Crops, the things that we want to grow like weeds, will grow with that kind of abundance. Jesus will be the new Adam to bring us back to Eden. And as we've been saying all along, Jesus has not yet fulfilled this part of his prophecy. We are waiting for him to return and to renew this planet. The New Testament reveals that Jesus will return to establish his rule upon this earth, and when he does, he will bring this prosperity with him in a way this world has never seen. In other words, what we read about in verses 11 and 12 will take place in the millennial kingdom of Christ. And so we long for him to return and make this earth a utopia. We want peace. We want blessing. We want there to be no hindrances. We want everything evil and bad to be out of the way and to be gone and banished. Jesus will bring that when he comes. Our hearts long for this, but it's only going to come if we bind ourselves to Christ, the Messiah. There is no other person that fulfills the prophecy of, of Isaiah or Genesis 49. Friends, as I said at the beginning, you need a king to reign over you in righteousness. Jesus is that king. He fulfilled the prophecies. He came the first time to deal with sin, and he will return again. And the key question will be, have you trusted in him alone for your salvation? Because there is no one else that can save you. There is no one else that will come that will fit, that will fulfill these prophecies. A professor I had at the Master's University, Dr. Will Varner, tells the story of taking a class on medieval Jewish history from an Orthodox Jewish woman who had a PhD from Harvard. And one week, as he was taking this class, it just so happened that he was the only student in this class, so it was uh, this professor and him that would show up each week for this class. And the topic for the day was the Messiah in medieval Judaism. And so she knew that Varner was an evangelical Christian, and, and so he said, well, Mr. Varner, I guess you've been waiting for this week for quite a while. She says, but let me just explain one thing. In my opinion, Christianity is totally irrational and highly mystical, and I cannot see how any thinking person can believe it. Varner graciously answered and asked, Do you mind if I take a few minutes to share with you the reasons why I believe the Christian faith has solid reasons for its validity? She said, sure, go right ahead. 
And so for the next 30 minutes, the Lord gave him strength to give truthfulness, uh, witness to the truthfulness of the scriptures, and he documented all of these messianic prophecies for this Jewish woman of, that were given throughout the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfilled those prophecies, how Jesus of Nazareth was the one that alone could fulfill them. And at the end of it, he closed his statement by saying this. He said, if Jesus is not the Messiah, then Orthodox Jews will be very disappointed because there will be no future Messiah for Israel. And she was shocked. And she says, what do you mean? And he then went on to explain that in 70 AD, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, there in the temple, they destroyed the genealogical records that were kept for thousands of years. Therefore, for any time hence, there have been no way to prove genealogical ancestry. In other words, there could be no one who shows up in the future and says, I am from Judah, and be able to prove it. But Jesus, he claimed to be the Messiah, and he did it before those records were destroyed. No one disputed his claims. They all knew what tribe he came from. And so he is the rightful Messiah, and he will return in the future to finish what he started. And when he comes, his only credentials he will show at that time is the wounds that he experienced in his first coming. And it says that they will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will weep for him as they weep for an only son. Only Jesus is the Messiah for Israel. Only Jesus is the rightful king for this entire world. The only one who saves from sin, and the only one who will take us back to Eden is Jesus. May we recognize him, may we trust him, may we treasure him this Christmas. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this morning and the privilege we have to look at your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us this scripture that reveals that the Messiah would come from Judah, that he would be a king, that he would be a king who would not just have some minor victories, but he would have ultimate victory over his enemies. And Father, we long for that ultimate victory. When Satan, our spiritual enemy, is ultimately destroyed and Jesus Christ is enthroned forever upon a throne upon this earth and when he will renew this planet. Father, I ask that you work in every heart that is here that you would help to grow that longing, to recognize that their greatest hopes are fulfilled only in Jesus Christ. May they not look to anything in this life, but look to him who came once and is coming again. And it's in his name we pray, amen.